Let's dig in because we've got a lot that we want to cover. Let's start by reading the passage just so that we're all on the same page. We know exactly what we're going to be talking about. We'll read the entire section and then we're going to go line by line through it um, throughout the night. So, of course, um, the scripture says here, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is out of the English Standard Version. This is pretty much kind of the crux of the debate regarding the role of women, um, the availability of ministry positions and functions to women. It really, in the end, comes down to these four verses or so. Um, This is where all the debate ends up being had. And you can see why. Like, this is a pretty blunt verse. This is the only place in the Bible that the Apostle Paul specifically commands women to be silent. We know that when he said silence in 1 Corinthians 14, um, we talked several weeks ago about the fact that he wasn't really talking about silence in the sense of like women are not allowed to speak in church. It had to do with disruptive communication and those sorts of things. But we don't really have the luxury here of saying like, oh, well, there was this particular type of communication that was problematic. Like really he's silencing communication from all women in the Ephesian church in particular. And so the question before us and before everybody when they have this debate is like, was this specific to that one time, to that one congregation, or was Paul setting out a principle or a practice that should be true of all churches throughout time in history, including Connect Church, all right? So that's kind of the question that we want to answer tonight. Let's start here right away with um, verse number 11, all right? Verse 11, Paul says, uh, no, verse 11, let's start with verse 11. Uh, Paul says, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. That's kind of how he begins. And there are a few things that I want to point out here. So the first is, when you read this verse, what do you think Paul's emphasis is here? What is he focused on? Go ahead, give me some feedback. Shout it out. Learning. Learning. So learning is the correct answer. A lot of times when this verse gets brought up or when this passage gets brought up, it's like Paul's focus is on women's place and knowing their role. Knowing your lane, ladies, don't step out of it. The thing is, though, um, the verb that he uses here, the focus, the subject of this statement and basically everything that follows is that women should be allowed to learn. That's his goal. That's the focus. And, and this really ties back to what we said a couple of weeks ago, that he doesn't want women in the Ephesian church to be taken in by false teachers. Okay, That was the problem that the Ephesian church was facing. We read in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 1 uh, through 3, I think. Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus as an elder, uh, specifically so that he can confront false teachers which were influencing women. So the first thing we want to notice here is that um, Paul commands that women learn. He actually says this is what should be happening in Christian churches. Women should learn. There shouldn't be theology that's off limits to women. Uh, We shouldn't like hide women in the back somewhere seen and never heard like children. He wants them to learn and to grow in their ability to understand scripture, understand theology, be able to interpret doctrine, all of those different things. Okay, so the focus is on learning, not on silence. But he does say there, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So what are those two words? Well, 
I've got him here on the screen for you. First, uh, the word quietly that he uses, although this is translated as silence in a couple of different um, versions of the Bible, it, it is a different word than silence. So the word that's translated quietly is um, hesukia in the Greek, and it literally means a quiet spirit, a quiet spirit. That's the, the first set of blanks there. Um, Paul says, let a woman learn with a quiet spirit. Now, that's a little bit different if you were to translate it that way than saying a woman needs to be silent when she learns. It's a different flavor. It's a different emphasis. It's a different focus. Uh, I realized that a couple of weeks ago I told you guys that Paul's word for silence in 1 Corinthians that he used there, Segao, I told you that that was the, um, the lighter version and this was the harsher version. I was wrong after I went back and did some more studying on that. I think I misspoke. Um, it's a little bit like you know, when you're comparing superlatives maybe in English um, or adjectives, it's like if somebody said something was awesome, somebody said something was amazing. It's like, well, which one was stronger? I don't know. It kind of depends. And it's a little bit the same with these words. It's like, which one is stronger? Which one isn't? It may be tough to, to say, but what I can tell you is that um, this phrase or this word, it literally means a quiet spirit, a quiet way of life, a quiet way of approaching things. So it involves your, uh, it, it involves vocals, it involves your voice because you're not talking, you're listening, right? But it also is like a posture of openness, a posture of quiet, a posture of learning, a posture of even submission that we'll talk about. Now, here's what's really interesting. Uh, Paul uses the exact same word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. So same chapter, same section of the Bible. Uh, he uses that exact same phrase, and it applies to everybody in the church. So let me read that for you here just for a sec. 1 Timothy 2, 2. Paul says, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and hesukia lives, quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. So if you want to know, like, what does it mean to be hesukia? What does it mean to have this quiet uh, sort of spirit? It's marked by godliness and dignity. It's marked by a, a, a calm posture. All right. Um, that's the sort of stuff he's talking about. So it's not just women in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that are told to be Hesukia, right? It's not. It's men as well. It's the entire church. The command that Paul places on women, he also places on men. So what we learn from this is that this is not a quality that should be true of only women. It should be true of all Christians. This is a Christian quality, not a female quality, because it's commanded upon both men and women. Does that make sense? Yep, tracking with me? Cool. Paul says here, let a, a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Now, we've kind of talked a little bit before about the fact that, like, submissiveness in our world is a bit of a dirty word, right? Like, it can be abused. It has been abused for sure. But submissiveness, as it's biblically understood, is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it is also true of every single Christian. Uh, it's even true of Christ, but we'll get to that in a bit uh, next week. So the, the word here um, that is translated submissive, I've got it on your sheet, um, it's hupo to gay. It literally means to place yourself under or to obey. To obey is the blank there. Um, which you're like, wait a sec now. Um, let a woman learn with a quiet spirit and she needs to fully obey. Mm, I don't know if I like the sound of that. 
Well, just like with the first word, this is not a word that is only used for females. In Ephesians chapter number 5, verse 21, this is a part of the household codes, you know, uh, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord, all that sort of stuff. Um, if you go, that's verse 22 of Ephesians 5. If you go to uh, chapter 20, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 21, it says that all of us should submit, hupa to gay, uh, all of us should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's not a female description again. You see what I'm saying? It's not an adjective that only applies to ladies. It applies to us men as well. It applies to all Christians. These are the marks of somebody who is a follower of Jesus, not merely a female follower of Jesus. All right? Uh, the other thing I'll say, and we'll bring this up next week, but you know, I know that there will be people that may not hear next week for one reason or another. Um, so let me remind you that uh, submission from a biblical perspective is always voluntary. It is always something that a person chooses of their own accord and volition. It, forced submission is an oxymoron. It literally doesn't exist. It cannot exist because submission is a choice that you make for yourself to place yourself under somebody else's authority, leadership, care, provision, whatever. And the biblical word not only is like, oh, well, now you have to obey or submit, but it, it also carries this idea of bearing or carrying. All right. So like if Amber submits herself to me, there is a sense in which she is helping to carry my calling. It could be my vision or, um, you know, it could be any number of things and vice versa as well. If I submit myself to her in some matter, then I am also carrying the load that she carries as well. So forced submission is an oxymoron. Biblical submission is always a choice and it's always a good thing. Can that be, um, what's the word, abused? Yes, 100%. It has been abused. But you know what? Nearly everything on the planet has been abused. Just because something can be misused doesn't mean that it's improper from the jump. Uh, submission is a good thing. It's a quality that's commanded and enjoined on every single Christian, okay? So, so far in this like crazy passage, the crux of the debate for women in ministry and women in leadership and all that stuff, Paul has only told women to do the exact same things that he's told the men to do. He's given them the same restrictions, the same obligations, okay? He hasn't actually said anything unique. So let's move on then to verse number 12. And this is where things start to get, you know, a little bit spicier, all right? Um, in verse number 12, he starts by saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over the man. So let's begin with that first phrase there, I do not permit. A woman to teach. I do not permit. The way that Paul writes this in the Greek literally says, I am not permitting. That's your blank. I am not permitting. So the Greek verb that he uses here, and this is like super deep nerdy stuff, okay? But when we when we're um, interpreting what the original language says, we've got to parse the words. And so that means looking at the tense. That means looking at the mood. That means looking at, you know, several different factors. And what we see, this word that Paul uses here, it's present, it's active, and it's indicative. So those three things mean he is talking about a current situation, something that is going on right now. Okay, so let's say that you were approaching this passage for the very first time. You crack it open. Paul says, I am not permitting a woman to teach or have authority over a man. How might that change the way that this verse is typically understood or interpreted? 
What do you think might be going on there if it's rendered that way instead of I do not permit? Okay. Situational. Situational. Okay. Yeah. Present tense, situational. Other thoughts? There was a specific reason he said not right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So, I think, like, you guys are hitting it correctly there. If we interpret this as literally as we can, Paul says, I am not permitting. And that at least is a construction that leads you to think, well, okay, he's not permitting it right now. But is he saying never forever? It, it doesn't seem that way by the grammatical construction anyway. In English... When we translate it over, I do not permit, it seems like this universal command. Of course, we know it's not a universal command. Go read Romans 16. Go read the book of Acts. There are plenty of women that Paul does permit to teach, and he actually commends and celebrates them for it. So I think understanding the way that this is actually written helps you to have a proper um, interpretation of what he intended, or at least um, a proper reading of what he may have intended uh, there in, in that. So I, he is saying literally, I am not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now the word that he uses there to teach, it just means to teach. There's nothing special about it. There's no like, you know, like, well, when he's talking about teaching here, he really means that kind of teaching and not this kind of teaching. No, it literally, it's didaskalo. It means to teach. It's the same word that's used, um, it translated as teach throughout the entire New Testament. So that's just an FYI. There's nothing special or unique about that particular um, one. We'll come back to the or. I've got or highlighted right there in the verse. You'll see. We'll come back to that in a minute. But when we get to the next phrase, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Uh, this is the most controversial translation uh, phrase, Greek phrase in the entire Bible. There is no more. We have less a clue of what this exact phrase means than any other set of words in the Old or New Testament. This is very very debatable, controversial, confusing, and fuzzy stuff, okay? So uh, the, the word here, I've got it for you uh, on, your, on your page. The phrase that's translated have authority is authenteo. That's the verbal form, have authority, exercise authority. Authentane is the noun version, and you'll see that sometimes in the discussion for this. Um, so here's the crazy thing about this, okay? The word that Paul uses here, authenteo, it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere, okay? So this is a very unique word that he uses, and it most literally means to murder. That's your first blank. To murder or to domineer. That's your second blank. Authenteo most literally and originally meant to the first, if you go um, to like Thayer's lexicon and you look up what's the meaning of authenteo, it literally means to kill with your bare hands, to literally choke the life out of someone or something. That's the imagery that's given with authenteo. Now, the New Testament is written in what we call Koine Greek, which is a particular type of Greek that was very common around the world in the first century, in and around the first century. Authenteo itself is a verb that has existed for hundreds of years in classical Greek. And in classical Greek, it was a word that meant to murder, to take the life of someone or something with your bare hands. 
Then by the time we get to the New Testament, the Koine Greek time, the primary meaning of it is to domineer or dominate. It, it still carries this negative energy, negative association. This is about an abuse of authority. Um, this is about violence. It carries connotations of violence behind it. It's like overpowering someone against their will. That's the, that's the meaning of the word as it's used in Greek in the time of the New Testament, okay? Now, there are other words for authority throughout the scripture. Um, we, we read the most common one is um, exousia. Exousia, that's the, the verb that's used or the noun that's used uh, to describe proper and healthy authority. So like in um, Matthew chapter number seven, verse 29, the scripture says the people were amazed when Jesus came and taught in the synagogue because has, he taught as one who had authority had exousia. Jesus never thought, taught with authenteo. Never. That word would never be used to describe Jesus. That would be a word that's used to describe Satan, right? Like Jesus never, de that, that word authenteo, it's never applied to any Christians. That word or that concept of authority is never applied to the church. It's never applied to the kingdom of God. In fact, it's the opposite of the kingdom of God. Now, by the 5th century, so by the 400s, the word authenteo had changed meaning again. So, like, originally, a few hundred years before the time of Christ, authenteo meant to murder with your bare hands. It had tamed and calmed down by the 1st century, but it still carried a lot of negative connotations. It meant to domineer or to dominate, to abuse your authority over somebody. Then, a few hundred years after that, the meaning had tamed even more, and it was used as a word to describe more legitimate authority. So like typical authority, proper authority that a pastor might have or a governor might have or a business leader, I don't know, whatever, um, that word would be used as proper authority. So over time, we see the shape of this word and the meaning of the word going from extreme and negative to much more neutral. But at the time it was written, it meant to domineer, to dominate, to abuse one's authority, okay? So when Paul is writing here, He's saying, I am not permitting a woman to teach or to domineer. The King James says it like to usurp, which means to steal or rob rightful authority or to domineer. And that is the correct interpret or the correct translation. It's like one of the rarest times in which the King James is the most <laughs> accurate translation. And this is it. It is 100% the, the correct way. Because if we read it here in the ESV, it literally says exercise authority, which to our minds means like have any sort of control or leadership. But that's not what Paul says. It is quite literally not what he had in mind, right? So um, this, this phrase is very hard to, uh, for us to interpret, but however you interpret it, it's always going to be negative, okay? I find the, it funny that all the KJV-only people are the ones that are definitely believing that women should not have any authority. Totally, but yeah, their, their <laughs> translation actually is the most accurate on this part, yeah. Um, another thing that I want to make, and then we're going we're gonna to circle back to that highlighted or that's in the middle of the verse. Uh, another point that I want to make here is that um, the exousia, the proper authority that is vested um, in the kingdom of God is vested corporately and not individually. So I, we don't have to, I like, I could do an entire session on this and I won't, but like the only time that Jesus individually invests authority into people is to the original disciples. 
but they are representative of the church as a whole, the church that will come about um, through them. He says, like, I've given you authority to trample over snakes and scorpions and all those different things, right? He does that. But it's not just for those 12. It's literally for the church. Like, we've always understood that these verses, the authority to, you know, pray in his name, the authority to, to evangelize, the authority to interpret, all of those things have applied to the church corporately. So the exousia, the authority itself, it resides in the church and not in individuals. We know this is true like as Protestants because, for instance, when we read Peter's great declaration about Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus says, you know, you're correct. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And um, he says... um, it's on this rock, on this truth that I'll build my church. So like Catholics would say, he means on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. But we say, no, he's not talking individually here. He's talking about the truth that is going to be the foundation upon which the entire church is built. We could think about it in terms of things. We could think about it in terms of the, um, like the priesthood of every believer, right? So if the authority of the church is invested in individuals, then there are people who are special classes of Christians. They have both um, access to God, responsibilities, benefits, gifts, whatever, um, that they have that normal Christians don't. And this is really at the heart of like Catholicism and orthodoxy and things like that. There is a special priestly class. Like Catholics believe that a priest has been imbued with the authority to translate the elements of communion into the actual body and blood of Jesus. They believe that a a priest has been given the actual authority to forgive sins. This is not an authority or uh, a gift or an ability that the average Christian has, but a special class has. As Protestants, we read that and we say, no, like this is corporate. The exousia doesn't reside in any individual. It resides in the congregation as a whole. The reason that this matters is that um, the exousia then is not mine as the leader as the pastor. A lot of times it's like, well, women, they can't have authority because they can't, they they can't lead rather because they can't have authority. But the authority doesn't reside in the individual. The authority resides in the deposit of truth that's been communicated to us and in the commissioning of the church as a whole. So it doesn't matter whether a woman has authority because women are already a part of the church, which carry authority. That means a woman can baptize if the church authorizes her to baptize. Like in the same way, I'm not authorized to baptize simply because I'm a man, therefore I can. No, I'm authorized to baptize because the church has vested that ability within me. And we can literally extend that to Terry, we can extend it to Amber, we can extend it to Jen. The church has the authority and they can give it to whomever they deem is appropriate in line with the scriptures, right? Um, Amber and I were talking, you had an interesting story about this that I thought, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I'd forgotten about this. We've talked about a lot of stories and you know, as I listen to this, I think that this verse in particular has a lot of root behind so many spiritual abuse stories that I have. And so I thought I would share one with you, and I know all of them are mostly depressing. I'm really sorry about that. But um, this one actually has a bit of redemption. So hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel for you. But um, so when Daniel and I first moved to Florida, um, we moved there and we were there for 10 years. And through 10 years, there were three different pastors. So that's pretty quick. I mean, we've lived here for seven years. Imagine going through three pastors in that amount of time. Like, that's crazy. So the church went through a lot of change. But through that time, I grew in my music ministry scope. So I started with, like, doing a lot of um, 
youth choir stuff. I started a youth band from nothing. Like I would be involved in children's ministry choir and occasionally I would lead um, on a Sunday morning when the worship pastor was out of town, I would lead worship. So um, the third pastor came along and uh, our worship pastor was about to go out of town and I said, hey, it's been a long time since I've led worship on Sunday. Like, I would love to fill in for you next time you go out. So he goes out of town. I don't fill in. It's some other guy who, to be honest, doesn't do a good job. And, <laughs> and, and he, he comes back, and I'm like, hey, man, I, I asked, you know, to do this, and you didn't put me in. Like, what happened there? What's going on? Are we okay? And he's like, yeah. You know, the pastor really has an issue. I, I just I felt awkward putting you up there because he told me he doesn't want a woman leading on stage. Now, that's weird because I've been doing this at this church, at, at this body of Christ. I've been doing this for the past seven years. And so that's weird. Two, like I sing solos. I sing on the worship team. I lead the youth band, like I lead it with students of all genders. So like, this is weird. <laughs> so I was kind of caught off guard and, and I went home to tell Daniel, he's like, okay, well don't get hot headed. Let, let me find, <laughs> let me get to the bottom of this. I don't know if I exactly okay, said okay, that. Okay. I probably said, I love you, you're amazing. <laughs> Let's find out for sure what's going on from the guy who made the decision. You know, I was in my 20s, and there was definitely a joke within our marriage that if, there, if he was to ever get fired from the church, it would be my fault. <laughs> because I had a tendency to just rush in and be like, what the heck? So um, anyway, Daniel goes in, and he's like, hey, uh, we heard that, you know. I'm talking to the senior pastor. Now. Yeah. He's like, we heard that Amber couldn't lead worship on stage because you know, you, you have an issue with that. So can we talk about that? I'm not in the room. So this is all relayed by my husband because we're afraid that I might get too hot-headed. <laughs> so um, he's like, yeah, you know what? Um, that's that's kind of where I stand on this. And I couldn't even tell you that that's biblical or why. It's just what I believe. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> I have to be honest with you guys. This This led me this led me to a year of depression and it was really hard. I cut back on doing everything. I was angry. I was so mad because serving Christ through music was just my passion and my gifting. And so I thought, what, what do I do now? And I stepped back. I stopped leading choir. I said, well, there's no point for me to be on stage leading choir if, if I don't have authority. I stopped leading. Um, I stopped singing on worship team. I stopped singing solos. The only thing I did was youth band because that was our thing. And to me, it was almost like a separate church now. Like, this is the thing that we lead. That's the thing he leads. And I was just so angry for a year. And it led me to really hold a lot of resentment but I told you that there's redemption so I think that God used this um and it was really interesting how it played out it was the year before we had ever come to Canada for the first time 
so um there was there's more to it that I won't I don't have time for but um God had just been working on me like and I think readying me for change and it's it's funny how God can use things like this to like prepare your heart so we weren't looking to leave and I've said that plenty of times we loved our church family in Florida I still love them like I check on them all the time but like there was question of like can we continue on so we came out to Florida I mean to Canada for the first time and if I had been in a different mindset I don't think I would have been open to moving here because guys palm trees and the beach (laughs) so um (laughs) things were comfortable Mm -hmm. the only thing that was uncomfortable was this situation yeah so I think God used that and allowed that to happen to ready us for our next stage. We talk with church planners about like one of the ways that you know that you're actually called to plant a church is that you have a sense of holy discontentment. So it's easy to have a sense of discontentment. Like mm-hmm. everybody can get discontent with their job. You can get discontent with your church, your pastor, whatever. That doesn't mean you're ready to go plant a church. In fact, if you're simply discontent, then you're probably not ready to plant a church. Um, but if there's a holy discontentment, if you are burdened by lostness or you have a frustration about ministry that you legitimately believe God has called you to and you simply cannot do it in your current setting, then that can be an indication that God has, you know, prepared you for this moment. And I think that that is part of what God used to help get you ready for mm-hmm. sure. Like it was a full year of like, it's the only time I've ever seen you depressed. I was very concerned about you faith wise because I didn't know like, was this going to impact like your relationship to the church forever? Like a year is a long time to have a wife who's like serving beside you for, you know, the entirety of your marriage. And then suddenly she's like, yeah, I don't don't know. I just don't care. I'm not really interested right now. It's like, Oh, you know what I mean? Then you're on staff and it's like, she's there, but it's clear that she doesn't love it right now. And everybody's like, Samber. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's just hard. It's tough. So, So the redemption through this, which is really interesting, actually, um, so we moved here. We, we were getting ready to start our church, and I flew down to Florida by myself. And um, the pastor, the same pastor, called me and said, he didn't call it preaching, but he said, I would like for you to come and speak about Canada and share what you guys are doing and take the entire sermon time. And so I did. And, and in fact, that was the very first time that I would say I preached an entire sermon mm-hmm. to a congregation. Yeah. <laughs> and because it, it was the first opportunity. And um, that was a really big step for him. Mm-hmm. And I've I've preached at that church two or three times, which is a huge step for him in particular and for that church. Yeah. And and that's a, a really big deal. And it healed me because I could say, like, the minute we decided to move to Canada, forgiveness was available and I was able to let go. And, and it was almost, like, instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the moment that we were like, yeah, we're moving, I was, it was just gone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's, it's fine. And I'm going to keep going. And I'm, I was all in a ministry again. And my heart was on fire and I was ready to go. So I really do think that God used that. Um, So there can be redemption through these difficult stories. Totally. So, you know, like I mentioned, the the exousia, the authority of the church is a corporate thing. And so, like, if it rests in an individual, then the individual can change it at, at will and at whim. And that's part of what we experienced in that situation. I think part of the benefit and the beauty 
of the exousia residing with the church corporately and not individually is that it does form protection against abuses of of authority. It keeps the exousia from becoming the authenteo, right? Because it's like, no, this isn't your church. You don't own this thing. Like as a pastor, I'm an under shepherd. Like I'm the sheep. Uh, like I've been given charge of other sheep, but I'm still a sheep. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not a sheep dog. I'm not like, <laughs> do you understand? Like it, there's no difference between us because the authority resides in the shepherd. It resides in the shepherd's words. Okay. Anyway, um, so you'll notice here I highlighted. So we've talked about I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority, but I've highlighted that tiny little word or. And the reason I've highlighted that word is because there is huge debate about whether Paul had in mind one activity or two separate activities in this prohibition, in this statement, okay? Um, does, he, does he have in mind teaching, authority, authoritative teaching, domineering teaching, right? Like it's tough to know the way that he uses this particular word. This construction, um, it's, it's in Greek, it's a neither nor construction. So he's saying like, I neither allow a woman to teach nor to have authority. That's the way it's written in the Greek. And unfortunately, it's used a bunch of different ways in the scripture. So like think about Galatians 3, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So it's a neither nor construction, but it's associating two opposite things, Jews and Gentiles. However, we read in the Psalms that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. So it's the same construction, neither nor, and yet this time it's comparing two things that are basically uh, the same word, right? So it's like we don't know exactly here what Paul had in mind. Was he saying, I do not permit a woman to teach? And he could have put a period, and that would have been the end of the thought. Also, I do not permit a woman to have authority, period, and that could have been the end of thought. Or is he saying, I do not permit authoritative teaching, or I do not permit domineering murderous teaching, right? That, like, there are a bunch of different ways that you can interpret this. And if you're having a discussion with somebody and you're trying to figure out where they're at, then this is one of the questions you can start to ask. Like, okay, in, in verse number 12, is Paul talking about one thing or two things? If it's one thing, which of the one thing, right? It's, a, it's kind of a difficult and sticky translational situation. I find and that... that that line of thought, murderous teaching, okay, really yeah. interesting. That's uh, well, it's um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how seriously we can take it, but like, not very. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but I tend to think like if that was the the very first translation, like how it was written, I could totally see how we're like watering it down each time because we've got to make this applicable to the people. Let, let's make this, you know what I mean? Yeah, I would say like so. Paul certainly didn't have murder in mind when he's talking about this. He knew that in the past, that's how the word would be used. He understood that. He was using it. I mean, there's just no reason to assume that he wasn't using it in the way it was understood in that century, in the first century. So, like, he, he would have understood the negative connotations, but he wouldn't have been using it as murder. That That's merely to illustrate kind of the arc of the meaning of the word. I'm just joking when okay. I say it's murderous, okay? Um, so that's the question. Does he have one or two things? Then, of course, we move on, and uh, we get to verses 13 and 14, which are um, the big ones, right? This is uh, what complementarians say is the justification for women being silent or quiet, being submissive, not holding leadership positions, that sort of thing, because Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. transgressor. Uh, we'll deal with verse 15 here in, in just a little bit, okay? 
So um, first off, um, the word for that's used right here, that is typically in our minds and in complementarian minds, it's interpreted meaning like because, right? It's an explanation. Uh, why should a woman be silent? Because Eve was formed second and she was deceived first, right? That's the way the word for functions in English. It can function in Greek the same way, but it doesn't always. And in fact, that's really not even the primary way that it's used. That word for can be uh, used as a, as a linking of two ideas without one being the justification or the source of the other one. There is a, um, another example of this here in 1 Timothy 2, and I don't think I wrote it down on my notes. Um, let's see. Okay, here we go. I can, I can read it to you, though. Same chapter, okay? Paul's going to use this word for, but he doesn't mean because. He's linking two ideas, but not grounding them in each other. Uh, Paul says this. Um, he, he says, you know, pray for everybody, pray without disputing, blah, blah, blah. He says, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. There's that Heisukia word, uh, marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For, there's that word, there is one God and one mediator uh, who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. So Paul doesn't say, this pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved because there is one God and one mediator. Grammatically, that doesn't make any sense, right? So he's not saying one is the cause of the other, but that these two things are linked in meaning or import. It's the same thing here. Just because Paul uses the word for doesn't mean that he is saying because, okay? That's an English construction, but it's not the primary construction in Greek, and it's not how he's used the word in this exact passage, okay? Um, if, if we believe that verse 13, that word for, if we believe that it means because, so he's saying women should do all of these things or not do any of these things because Eve was formed uh, second and deceived first, then what it does is it creates uh, a woman who is ontologically inferior to the man. Okay, that's your next blank there. She's, if Eve somehow should be submissive and silent if there are things that are cut off from her merely because she's created second, then th those are things that are inherent in her based on her gender. And those are like that is the very definition of an ontological inferiority. It literally means there is something fundamental about their nature, women's nature, that prevents them from having access and opportunity and gifting and position as men. So like we have to recognize that throughout Christian history, that's what the church has believed and taught for the most part. Like the majority teaching has been that you ladies were formed second, and that is proof that you are ontologically inferior in some way. Um, it could be, like, it was expressed in a bunch of different ways, um, all of them bad, but the idea is like, you weren't even formed from the same stuff man was. You know what I'm saying? Go back to Genesis, Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, you were formed from Adam. You have a derived creation. You have a secondary bearing of the image of God. You only bear it because you were created from a man who bore it. Like, Frankly, this is what the church taught for millennia. For like the better part of 1,500 years, that was the, the major understanding anyway. 
Now, we look back at that today and we say, no, come on. That, like, we know that that can't be true. It doesn't jive with the rest of these scriptures and like what we know just through common sense about men and women and things. That doesn't make sense. The problem, though, is that complementarians will use the same arguments, but they refuse the same conclusions. Does that make sense? Like they're making the same argument that people made for 1,500 years, but then when we point out, well, if you believe that and that and that, then you also believe that women are ontologically inferior. It's like, oh, no, no. I mean, they, they have the same value as men, but it's like, wait, how can they have the same value if from the moment they were created, they were made to be led? If they were made to be submissive to men who do not need to be led, who do not need to be submissive. That is the very definition of ontological inferiority. And so we have to acknowledge, like, I don't have any problem with the, um, I mean, I do have problems, but I can respect at least uh, a complementarian that would say, like, yeah, no, I, I believe there is some level of inferiority or difference between men and women. Like, I can at least appreciate the fact that they are logically consistent. Um, but to say, well, women were created, they have a derived image, but no, that doesn't mean that they're different. It just feels like you're trying to play both sides, okay? Um, then we get into the line here where Paul says, um, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and she became a transgressor. Um, and if that's true, I note here in your blank that um, uh, if women's original sin means she is more likely to be deceived, she is morally inferior, morally inferior. Like there is something in her that was either proven through the fall or it was established in the fall either way it doesn't really matter some complementarians will say well it just proves that women are ontologically inferior they are more susceptible to deception that is a very common teaching in complementarian theology that women cannot lead or teach because they are more susceptible to being deceived you need proof just look at the first woman all right what were you going to say well, yeah. Here, but yeah. like, uh, like uh, men are more likely to do a lot of stuff, stuff. They're more likely to murder. They're more likely to rape. They're more sure. likely to do a lot it's of true. horrible things. Yep. So that, that would never make sense. Well, it also, like, to me, that it does make sense from a complementarian standpoint because to me, unless I'm, like, reading it wrong, the assumption would be that if Satan had got to Adam first, he would have been able to mm -hmm. resist that. But all it took was Eve going, let's do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so wouldn't that make us actually superior? Like we're, yeah. we're more, and yeah, we have more influence than Satan. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> if you would have been able to, yeah. to brush off Satan and be like, no, I'm not going to be deceived by you. And all she did was like, mm. So that's an argument that's been made in both ways. So made in the way that you're making it right now. It's also been made from the complementarian side that Eve's great sin, or at least part of her great sin, was in taking leadership over her husband, right? she Adam granted her influence that she should not have had. And like... Theologically, that's true. Like, Amber should not have influence in my life that leads me to sin. That's true. But again, is that influence tied to our fundamental natures or our fundamental sinful natures, right? Like, both of those things, I think, are present, but only one of them consistently makes sense with who we see um, God or how we see God creating men and women. Um, 
I'm so glad you brought that up and remind us of, I think we mentioned it in an earlier session, but I think it bears repeating all the time. And it actually falls in line with what we're going to say, how we wrap this up. Because like the reason that Paul brings up Eve here is not to prove Eve is the prototypical woman and all of y'all are going to make the same mistakes as her. That's not it. What he's actually going to say is Eve forms a good illustration of what happens when women are not properly educated in the scripture and they are then vulnerable to deception. So like he's going to make the same argument where it's like, yeah, it's not just women that are the problem and it's not just men. We're all the problem. If men don't allow women to be properly educated in the scriptures, let a woman learn but she needs to learn properly. Um, if, if men are going to prevent that from happening, then we're going to have women that are easily deceived. Who bears the responsibility for that? Who bore the responsibility in the garden? It wasn't Eve. It was Adam and Eve. Right. right? And I think we said that we are not sure that Adam ever relayed the, the rule of don't eat this fruit. Well, so we know that Adam wrote. So, okay. When God gave the command that um, you should not eat the fruit that's on the tree of life, or the, sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was given to Adam. Then later, Eve is created, and we know that when she responds to the devil, um, you know, the devil says, did God really say? And she says, yes, God did say, we cannot eat the fruit of this tree. In fact, we should not even, I don't remember if she says, says, look at it or touch it, but it's like hyperbole, it's exaggeration. And so the question becomes, like, is she making stuff up because she's ontologically inferior and easily deceived, or is... Adam responsible for like teaching his wife false doctrine? Did he tell her, girl, don't even touch it, right? Like it's like, we don't know if he accurately communicated the words of God to her or not. It seems like he probably didn't. We'll talk about some of the reasons why here in in just a minute. But yeah, I think that these are critical connections that we have to make when we come to to 1 Timothy chapter number two. Um, I've got a couple of, of questions and these are really more like questions for irony. They're valid questions, um, but I think they're interesting. So if, as many, I would say most complementarians claim, women are more easily deceived, then why is it that women are the ones who are commanded to teach other women? Like, this seems like a real bad idea all the way around. Look at what it says in in Titus, chapter number two, verses three to four. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers um, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. So like now we've got older women who are supposed to train younger women, but women are easily deceived. So like the teachers could be deceived. The learners aren't going to be able to discern whether or not the teachers are deceived. And we just got a big mess. Like if there was something fundamentally, ontologically or morally wrong with women, you would expect Paul to say, women, listen to the men. They're your betters. They know. They're the ones that you can trust. But he doesn't. He says, educate the freaking women and then let them teach. And they have an access to women that men won't have in the Roman world. And so they're the ones who are going to do the primary teaching. It just doesn't make sense that like if there is fundamentally something wrong with women, that they would be the ones to continue to teach women. It doesn't logically make sense. That's a really good argument. So the other thing here is um, if Paul's reference to Eve in this passage is evidence uh, that female submission is transcultural, okay? So remember, a complementarian would say, all right, Paul says, for Eve was created second and deceived first. That proves that this belongs to everybody at all times because he appealed to, you know, Eve way back in the day. Um, If that's true, then when Paul does the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's discussing head coverings, 
why is that cultural, but this is transcultural, right? So I think we read this, uh, I know we read this a few weeks back. Here it is on the screen just again as a refresher. Paul says, we're jumping into the middle of the conversation here, but he says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, then let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from the woman, but woman from the man. So he's appealing back to Eve, to the creation story. This is Genesis 2, Genesis 1. It's the same thing that he was talking about in 1 Timothy 2. But when we read this, 1 Corinthians 11, we don't require women to wear head coverings today. We say, well, that was cultural. You guys don't have to worry about that. Um, But why? Because he's appealing to the same story. So again, we've got to be consistent in our interpretation. Either appealing to Eve makes this a universal command that all Christians need to follow, or it doesn't, and it serves a different function. And I'll show you what I think that function is here in just a moment. Um, Yeah, let's do it. Why not? So then why does Paul reference Eve in um, 1 Timothy 2? Oh, actually, one more thing. Sorry, I should mention this as well. Um, Let's say that the complementarian argument that women are somehow deficient. Fundamentally, there's something off about them, easily deceived as an example. Um, If that were true, then we should be able to bear that out in research. We should be able to test women, and you guys should score badly on tests that are designed to find out whether or not you are easily deceived. Can you figure out who's telling the truth? Can you figure out what's right? And of course, we know that when educational opportunities are the same, women test as well as men in every single category. There are some that you guys test better in, some we test better in, certainly not deception or anything like that. And the differences are all relatively minor. They're within a few degrees. So like, if what a complementarian says is true, that there's fundamentally something off about you women and your ability to detect lies, then we should be able to test and prove that but we can't. So maybe then the flaw is not with our research, but the flaw is with our interpretation of the scripture. Okay. Um, Why does Paul reference Eve then here in 1 Timothy 2? Why does he bring her up if it's not to, you know, kind of create a justification for women being silent at all times? Um, There are a few possibilities here. Um, So it may have been intended as a corrective for the false teaching of the Artemic cult. Artemic is that blank there, A-R-T-E-M-I-C. You remember two weeks ago, we talked about the cult of Artemis and Diana and um, how, how their theology weirdly matches up with what Paul says. I'm not going to rehash it because we already talked about it. So if you want to refresh on that, go back to um, Half the Church Week 8, and you'll see that there. More likely, though, Paul is simply using Eve as an illustration of how much damage can be done when a woman in particular, because that was the problem here, is improperly educated and then allowed to spread false teaching. When she's not given opportunities to discover what is proper and improper doctrine, and then she's given opportunity to to share without ever properly discerning uh, whether it's good and true and right and scriptural, I think he's using her as an example of this. So you can start to see some parallels, and I've listed them out here for you. Um, So first off, um, both Eve and uh, the Ephesian women were insufficiently educated. So this, um, if you look in Genesis 3.3, this is what you were mentioning a moment ago, Amber. Uh, Eve says, you know, like, we shouldn't eat it, we shouldn't touch it. And of course, like, that's not correct. And so uh, the most likely explanation to that is that she didn't receive correct education 
education or information from her husband. Then First um, Timothy two eleven, we know that the women were insufficiently educated because the whole point of Paul's writing in this passage is to let the women learn. Let them learn. They need to learn silently, properly within this context, but let them learn. So they were both insufficiently educated. And then both Eve and the Ephesian women, probably as a direct result of their insufficient education, uh, had been deceived. Eve, of course, was deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3.6, and the Ephesian women were deceived by false teachers. If you go to 2 Timothy 3.6, he talks about these false teachers. They're the ones who work their way into women's homes. They gain their confidence, and then they tell them things that crazy women believe. That's basically what Paul says. Let me wrap this up by um, pointing out to you guys, like when I say that Paul uses Eve as an illustration and not an explanation, um, he does this in the exact same way in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4. So that's your blank there. And I'll go ahead and put it on the screen and read it for you here. Uh, I want you to notice Paul is going to use Eve, but he's not making a because argument. He's making like Eve is a good illustration of what I'm talking about right now. So check this out. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4, he says to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So like literally he's saying like, you guys are a part of the church. Uh, I'm supposed to deliver you to your spiritual husband, Jesus. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts are led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received from us, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you had accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul is talking to a church full of men and women. And so, like, let's just focus on the men that he was talking to for a moment. He compares the men to Eve. You see what I mean? So he's not, like, saying, men, because Eve was formed second and deceived first, y'all are buying into false teaching. It doesn't make sense because the two don't connect. And yet Eve still serves as an illustration of what happens when somebody is not properly educated and they become deceived by false doctrine. So we see this same motif happening, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. Mm -hmm. When we see it happening three times in scripture, it's more than coincidence. This is the way that Paul uses the Eve story, not as an explanation, but instead as an illustration of what he's talking about. 1 Timothy 2, he's not saying, women, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. He's saying women who do not have the same opportunities to learn sound doctrine will be deceived as easily as as Eve was deceived. All right. That's his point here. So a couple quick things. Um, One thing that's been mentioned um, in some writings and things like that is like here in 1 Timothy, if Paul is telling Timothy something that's so obvious, right? It's like, bro, of course women have to be silent. Of course women are not allowed to teach. Everybody knows this. Paul doesn't use any of the typical like editorial remarks that he usually does when he writes to people. So if you read Paul's letters, you'll often hear him say, do you not know that? And then bum, 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 bum. And he gives them something obvious. Like everybody should know this point. How is it you don't know this? Um, He will say to them, you know He's like, you know this already because I've already told you that. That's a a pattern that Paul uses in his communication. Or he'll say, according to the traditions that I've delivered to you. He talks about this with like the Lord's Supper. I received, then I delivered uh, to you. He says that in 1 Corinthians even. Um, So basically he has this way of saying, look, you guys already know this stuff. That language is absent here in 1 Timothy 2. 
if he's talking about something that's transcultural and everybody already knows it, why doesn't he use any of that language? It seems weird that it's absent. Is that enough to prove complementarianism wrong? No, but it is interesting. Um, we do know, and I want to point it out again, that what he writes here in 1 Timothy 11 through 14, uh, 2, 11 through 14, is contrary to his practice elsewhere in the Roman world. It, you go read Romans 16. We've talked about this at length. Length. There are plenty of women who taught. There are women who taught publicly. There are women who taught doctrine authoritatively, and Paul never says there's anything wrong with it. It's only in this particular church that he has a problem. And then um, I note here at the bottom, um, this just this boggles my mind, you guys. This is just like straight screenshot of the Bible because I want you to see the whole context. This is the entirety of 1 Timothy 2. This is the whole chapter. Every bit of this debate and controversy about women in ministry can be boiled down to the verses that you see on the screen right now. What's super interesting is that people will take 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. I do not permit a woman to teach. She should be quiet, learn in submission, all that. They take that and they say, oh, this is literal. It's transcultural. It's universal. Every woman should be following this. Every church should be following this. But when we read 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verses 9 and 10, we don't follow it as literal, universal, and transcultural. So let me read that portion to you. Um, i got to get I, real close to see it. Here I'm going to look it over here. Uh, you got it? Okay, thank you. Uh, nine. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, nobody's got braided hair. I was checking. I was like, oh, that'd be so cool if there's a lady with braided hair. Um, maybe there's a lady that's wearing gold, a gold ring or necklace or something like that. So, like, if 1 Timothy 2 is a universal prohibition, some of y'all are sinning right now. Now, of course, I don't think you're sinning. I think that was a cultural norm that Paul set in a way that makes the gospel more palatable to their society. In our society, nobody looks at a woman wearing a gold wedding ring. He's like, ooh, you can't be a Christian. Nobody does that. But they would have in the first century. So Paul said, don't be flashy. Don't be ostentatious with your hair or your jewelry or your whatever. Um, in, the, in the 21st century, there's certainly principles that need to be taken from that, right? Like there is something to be said for like not wearing, you know, a giant rock of a ring and walking around and you're like, what's up girls, how y'all doing? You know what I mean? It's like showing it off, flashing and flossing on everybody. Of course we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't drive up in the, the most expensive car that our society has to offer and we shouldn't find our value in like the type of purse that we carry or, you know, the, what, the watch that we wear or whatever. Like there are principles that need to be taken here. But like you have to understand that like this is the same chapter paragraph and thought as all of these verses that have historically been used to keep women out of the pulpit or out of leadership or whatever and it's so inconsistent to interpret the bible this way either verses 9 and 10 are cultural and then and there are principles that are taken out universally which means then that verses 11 through 15 should be treated the same way or vice versa they are literal, and they both should be interpreted that way. You can't take two sections that are right up against each other and treat one of them as literal and the other one as figurative. All right? We can't do that. That's inconsistent and unfair to the Bible itself. Mm -hmm.